Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm your host for the ongoing free telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, sponsored by the Peace Alliance. This archive is from February 21st, 2013 and features an extraordinary conversation and journey, if you will, with Choctaw elder Sequoia Trueblood. We conversed about indigenous traditions and worldviews in restorative justice and justice and peace building. We hope you enjoy this archive and for more information about this series, to make a donation and to find out resources and related events, please go to dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. Click on the restorative justice tab You'll find a robust drop-down menu that has lots of information and archives from this series and related resources that we hope you'll find useful. We'll see you in the future. Enjoy this extraordinary conversation with Sequoia Trueblood. Welcome everyone to this evening's edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. Tonight I'm your co-host with a special co-host, Joyce Anastasia, who also was with us during our council with Woman Stand Shining. Tonight we are picking up on a council that was postponed from January with a very special honored guest. Um, and we'll be talking about indigenous perspectives in restorative justice. If it's your first time here tonight, again, this is a, a free telecouncil series, international series, that you can access through telephone or Skype, co-hosted and sponsored by the Peace Alliance. We welcome you tonight, and just a few notes about this room that we're in. It's a virtual room and council and throughout tonight, as with every call, we like to offer you the opportunity to be an active participant in the dialogue. So please keep in mind that throughout the evening, if you have a comment or question, you can press 1 on your telephone keypad. If you use your Skype keypad, just do the same by pressing 1. One thing to note as well is we have a very rich archive of over three dozen councils um, featuring ex exquisite conversations and incredible tools and what's working, what's not in the field, on the ground, um, as we discover the incredible moment that we're in, in time, in this present moment here in North America and beyond in the, the justice conversation. The archives that, that we have at the Do Peace website, where you went to register and sign up for tonight's council and others, houses, again, over 36 archives, including conversations with, uh, as I mentioned, Woman Stand Shining, Kay Pranis, Sujata Baliga, Lauren Abramson, James O.D., and so many people who are doing uh, just incredible work in this field. So this is a, a real tangible place for us to, to convene together, share stories and tools, and I hope that you'll check out the website, which is dopeace.us, that's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. For more information, go to the Restorative Justice menu tab, mouse over it, and you'll see a drop-down menu that houses all of those archives. I'd also like to make a quick announcement about a couple upcoming events in the United States surrounding restorative justice. In May, there will be a conference in um, Colorado Springs, Colorado, the Restorative Justice Symposium, which Dr. Howard Zare will be speaking at. Um, you can find more information out about that either by Googling it or going to the Do Peace website that I mentioned. Second of all, there will also be a national symposium and conference in Toledo, Ohio in June. So keep your ears tuned for those, those events if you're interested. And you can also, again, check out the website for more information and resources. 
So tonight, with without further ado, I I just um, I have a lot of of uh, just deep love and respect for tonight's very honored guest, uh, Sequoia Trueblood, and Sequoia is somebody that um, I've worked with over quite a few years now and who has has just deeply influenced me in his presence more than anything else. This this person is uh, a being who emanates something that is more than, than really what words can describe in the way of peace and the, the rightness of, of all the things that come to us in our experience. He's enrolled with the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and he, over many years, over all of his lifetime really, has contributed selflessly internationally bringing leadership models of peace and joy to the hearts of many. He's a pipe carrier and messenger of peace, and he has an off-the-grid style in his work. He offers something most have never experienced, the genuine guidance of a supportive, profoundly inspired, and diversely experienced elder. He's also worked um, in various backgrounds in leadership capacities within indigenous peoples' contexts as well as Western institutions, including the U.S. Army, the World Bank, Institute of Noetic Sciences, Harvard University Program for Extraordinary Experience Research, and many, many correction facilities across North America. Paramount in his work is always placing the needs of the young people first. And so my co-host tonight, uh, I just want to give a brief introduction to her as well, um, I, I just I have so much respect for Joyce Anastasia. She's a film, um, a film editor, a producer, a writer, and she also has worked extensively with Sequoia and other indigenous peoples uh, globally. She's also a contributor to many of the conferences, the, the SEED Language of Spirit, held annually in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So, Joyce, I just welcome you tonight as co-host of this special council and also wondered if you'd like to add anything to that welcoming of Sequoia into the circle tonight. Molly, thank you very much. I'm so honored to be here, and especially with uh, my, my dear, honored mentor, Sequoia Trueblood. Uh, when I first met Sequoia, you are absolutely accurate in saying that there is something about his presence. And over the years and time together, what I have experienced with Sequoia is that he truly walks the talk that he expresses in the world. He um, brings deep love into all that he experiences, including conflict, uh, and welcomes it as a as a gifting and a way to learn and be in the world. So, Sequoia, it is delightful to be here with you. Thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And so tonight, um, Sequoia, if you would possibly just begin, given the context of, of where we're going with the evening together, perhaps with a story from your own experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, but, uh, you know, first I would just like to say after all those uh, beautiful, uplifting, superlative words, that it's a good thing that uh, my parents named me what they did, Sequoia. For most people, uh, you know, have no idea what that actually translates into. You know, people say, well, it's, it's that big tree in California. But actually, Sequoia is a, uh, a Cherokee word, and uh, you can laugh as long as you want to when I tell you that uh, Sequoia translates into pig's leg. So, you know, I was given uh, that name to, uh, you know, uh, hold me down to the ground a little bit. And so I, I appreciate very much that you know, I'm able to, to share this with you in this loving, uh, uh, comical way at the same time. 
So, somebody said something? Just giggling, Sequoia. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I laughed about that for a long time. So, uh, anyway, Molly had asked me to talk about a little bit of a story uh, in my own life and uh, in relationship to prisons and my relationship with prisons. Uh, what she didn't uh, uh, indicate was that uh, I've actually been an inmate in all those prisons. And I would say, uh, and I don't even uh, know the number, I haven't kept track of that, but uh, I've been in at least as an inmate in 10 different prisons. And so I've got a lot of inside experience. And uh, not only from the prison, but the teachings and the learnings uh, of going inside myself and uh, seeing uh, who I am and uh, receiving the guidance that uh, comes through that process. So how did I end up in all those prisons? It's a long story, and we've only got an hour, so I'll do the best I can here. Um, I was in the... Uh, I want to start off with my birth in Oklahoma first because, uh, uh, you know, in 1940, when I was born, if uh, you had native blood in Oklahoma, uh, you were considered an animal. So I grew up that way. And uh, I had uh, people uh, feeding the animal out of me uh, for years, starting with uh, the German grandmother on my mother's side of the family. And... Uh, then the uh, residential school that I was placed in, the Brothers of the Sacred Heart had the job of beating the Indian out of me. And then when I finally met my mother when I was after my freshman year of high school, she placed me in with the, uh, the Sisters of Mercy in Oklahoma City, and it was their job to do what? Beat the Indian out of me. And so uh, eventually to get away from that, I, uh, I went and joined the Army as soon as I was 17. And I, I didn't uh, graduate from high school, although I've been to just about the same number of universities as I have uh, uh, prisons. And uh, so I received a, a good Western-style education along the way. And so... Uh, I joined the Army to get out of Oklahoma and get away from the beatings, I thought. Uh, but it, it was good for me because when I got into the military, I actually uh, found out that I had leadership abilities and that I was not uh, that uh, sorrowful uh, being uh, with, the, uh, with the animal inside who would never amount to anything. And don't even think about going to university, they would say, uh, you're too stupid and it will never work. So when I did go into the military, uh, you know, that was the time when this conscription process was still going. And here I am, 17, without a high school education, and I made a squad leader because they saw right away I, I had a lot of... Uh, potential in that area and to go back to the residential school, I was getting prepared for that because uh, we wore military uniforms. And I, when I was a little boy, nine years old, the last class we had every evening was a military drill and ceremony with me wearing a military uniform with a nice neat tie and any black shoes carrying, of all things, a rifle on my shoulder. So you know, it just seemed kind of natural to me when I got into the military and uh, basic training, the first thing you know we start doing is working with the uh, drilling ceremony and the rifles. So through, the, through that military process, I, I found that I did have great leadership abilities and, and that... Uh, I moved up very quickly in rank. And even without a, a high school diploma, uh, I was sent through uh, Officer's Candidate School and, uh, and went from there as to 
uh, through airborne school and becoming a Green Beret and found myself in Vietnam uh, planning and running uh, top secret missions. And so that uh, is where the things uh, started going a little bit awry. As one of these missions we were on out on the east uh, coast of the United States uh, and involved uh, uh, the, the Saudis and uh, the Iranians and the Iraqis and President Reagan and President Carter and on and on and on and it went sideways and someone had to take a hit for that and I was the chosen one. I was told I couldn't say a word about uh, what was happening, what had happened, and in and, and, uh, subsequent uh, uh, trials uh, before federal judges, I was not allowed to say a word. And uh, in North Carolina, I got a great gift. I received a 44-year uh, a sentence. And uh, three of that had to do with Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, where I, uh, uh, in, well, in, uh, in Leavenworth, uh, it was, had the first uh, uh, addiction uh, counseling uh, facility in any prison in the United States at that time. And so I went into that, and I was able to uh, get uh, all the drugs out of my life that I'd put in there. And back in those days when we were running missions in Vietnam, uh, we were given lots of amphetamines uh, so we could stay awake at night and uh, pay attention to what was going on. And then we, these were super-duper amphetamines. You could hear a pin drop in the jungle a mile away. And then when we would come back in, heavy, strong, powerful downers. I did that for two and a half years, and so when I uh, when I eventually uh, uh, got to uh, Leavenworth, one of the things that helped me do was detox there, get these drugs out of my system, and they had hired some of the greatest uh, counselors uh, uh, to work in that system there, and. Uh, so I learned many types of meditation, and I got really good at them. I, I was teaching Zazen meditation that I'd learned from a, uh, a Zen master in prison. And I was teaching uh, ways of the, uh, of the, uh, the Haiti uh, uh, folks, the ones that, uh, that these are the ones that pulled the pins out. And so we had a fellow from Haiti who came to this prison every, uh, every year and spent two weeks there, and I became his assistant. And so I learned many forms of different kinds of forms of meditation uh, through that person. So uh, it, was, it was good for me that it happened in the way it did, and it was also good in prison that I learned to accept that I had choices in my life. I wasn't very happy when I first went in there, and under the circumstances I went in under, not being able to defend myself at all. And uh, so I just came to the point where I saw, you know, I, I can be unhappy, and I've been that way, and I don't particularly care for that. So I decided to enjoy prison. And so I'm going to say very clearly that I had a great time in prison, and I enjoyed it. I even started sports uh, groups in prisons, uh, running half marathons, tennis tournaments, uh, powerlifting. I was a powerlifting coach in prison. And uh, so anyway, I was in that prison there, and when I got out of that prison, uh, uh, I ended up, in uh, North Carolina in a prison they called the Animal Farm up in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And that was uh, quite an experience. And, you know, something else that happened along the way, uh, people that were involved, you know, in these activities with me that got me in there said, if you keep your mouth shut, you know, we'll make sure you don't go to prison in North Carolina. Well, I ended up going to prison in North Carolina. And I ended up being 
sent to the uh, Western Carolina uh, Psychiatric Unit, uh, which was uh, a rural animal show. They had uh, 200 people stuffed in a room that would accommodate about 50, and nobody talked to me for two or three weeks. Would, uh, all of a sudden, one day, the warden calls me, and he says, I've been going through your records, and I don't see any reason why you should be in here. And I said, thank you. Would you please get me out? And another, I had a lot of strange things happen. This, uh, the warden in the prison says, look, everybody in here is on some kind of pharmaceutical drug except you. And I've got to have somebody who can uh, be a legal clerk, and I've got to get that punched on my ticket. And if you do that for me, I'll get you out of here. So... I got sent back to the main prison in Raleigh again and went through a paralegal course <laughs> and came back uh, to the psychiatric uh, hospital and true to this guy's word, the warden uh, uh, sent me off then to a, uh, uh, to a, uh, another, uh, another prison in North Carolina where I became the chief baker and and well-known uh, pancake maker. Uh, so you got if you're cooking in a prison, you better do it very good. And so I got real good at uh, doing these kinds of things. And not too long after I was put in there doing this, then I was sent to a honor grade prison um, uh, outside, right outside of the Cherokee Reservation. So it was quite uh, quite a, a route for me, and also somewhere in there along the way, uh, I ended up at one point in a uh, little county jail in Kansas City, and uh, in solitary confinement for a year. I was put on Xanax for a year, and that almost killed me. And they told me if I ever stopped taking it, it would kill me, but I couldn't handle the effects of it, so I did stop. And I went through a withdrawal that I found out later was much more heavy-duty than heroin. So, but anyway, all these things had to happen to me. And I'm in so much mm. acceptance of that now. And if we can help anybody in restorative justice... What they, we have to help them see is that this prison experience could be, you know, one of the uh, uh, best things that ever happened to them. You know, it's hard to tell people that up front. But we've got to have people in the restorative justice system who are capable of dealing with the depth of the pain and suffering that these people are dealing with. When I was to do this a couple of weeks ago and it uh, didn't work out. I was actually at uh, Southwestern College in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I was going to be uh, talking to you folks uh, from there, and it was just a great venue because those people, I've been all over the world. I've been to universities everywhere now. I still never got a, a high school education, but it doesn't make any difference. So, and I'd been to all of these places, and there at Southwestern College in New Mexico, the, the uh, three-year program they have there uh, is, makes uh, all pathways of counseling available, and these are some of the best counselors in the world coming out of that place. So it's, those of you who are interested in you know, doing more to, to help people in prison and those that may be put in a restorative justice program, you ought to look into this place and and get them involved in what you do. Because uh, they're amazing people, and most of those folks in there are people like us who had, uh, you know, who had traumatic episodes in their life, and they got over those episodes, and they've gone to the, the, this amazing counseling school so they can help others you know, who have had to deal with these kinds of things. You know, along the way, I've, uh, I've died four times, and I've come back four times. Just a month or two ago, I was down uh, doing some work down in Florida near uh, uh, 
the, well, the University of Florida. And there was a, a Hare Krishna uh, ashram there. Some of you may be aware of that. And so I just wanted to go there because I've been there before and the grounds are so beautiful. And as I went into the temple, I noticed someone outside, one of the monks outside, was kept looking through the window at me. And if I'd moved to another area, this monk would be at another window looking at me. And so after about an hour of being in there, I came outside and this monk is standing there and uh, he said something to me I never would have expected. He says, uh, how would you like to buy a Hari Krishna organic cookbook? Of course, I bought one. <laughs> and then he took, he says, I'd like to look at your hand. He starts looking at my hand and says, my gosh, he says, you've got one of the longest lifelines I've ever seen. It is a saying you're going to be well over 100 years old, and I already am aware that it's going to happen that way. I'm 73 now and, like, going on 18. And, and then he says, and, and you had a, a serious thing happen to you. You crossed over, and then you came back. And then he looks along the lifeline again, and he's saying, you crossed over again, and you came back again. He says, who are you? He said, I'm mm. a little boy from Proud, Oklahoma. <laughs> mm. so, so anyway, that's a little bit of a, a story to get things going. And I would like to tell you, too, I'm, I'm not at Southwestern College now. I'm in the center of the universe in Lone Grove, Oklahoma. <laughs> well, we'll go uh, out. <laughs> well, Sequoia, you, you speak, one of the things that strikes me so deeply um, about your life and, what, and, you know, of course, what you've just been sharing um, and your experiences yourself as, as a prisoner, um, you speak to the element of acceptance and also to... Um, perhaps uh, the aspect of, of a welcoming in the experiences that are at hand. And I also would like to open up the conversation um, to the elements that um, within our current justice system, uh, there, there are indigenous traditions, there, you know, yours included as a Choctaw and, and, um, and global um, tribal traditions, um, it, whether you know ancient or current, we see family talk happening around the fires in Sierra Leone. We see the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. You yourself have been to Northern Ireland. Um, so there's there's a lot of examples in our world of a way that um, symbolizes something perhaps deeper than what we have currently in the system here in the United States and. I just want to ask you to speak to what those elements might be and, and perhaps add in the indigenous perspectives that you bring to, um, to how we might continue to transform, as we're doing right now in this moment, the current justice system in the United States in particular. Okay. Um. You know, there's something that came to my mind when I was told that I was you know, when I was asked to do this. And it just, one of the, the first class in that residential school every morning was Bible study. And I remember the story of Cain and Abel and how Cain killed Abel. And Abel went off into the wilderness somewhere. So if there's somebody out there who can answer this for me, I'm wondering, you know, uh, how restorative justice might have worked. It seems like it was in the process to be working that uh, Cain was fully forgiven in that process. So if there's somebody out there who can share that with me, uh, that would be nice. Um, and also, I've lived in Mongolia. And, you know, before I went to Mongolia, I'd always heard about what a terrible guy this Genghis Khan was. And I get over there and I find out he's a saint to those people. And he had his own restorative justice system. So there, back in the 1200s or whenever it was that Genghis Khan was going, uh, 
he did a lot of restorative justice work that you know he doesn't uh, really uh, receive credit for. But if you look into his background, you'll see it was there, and there's some good teachings in there for anybody looking at restorative justice. Uh, Sundance with the Lakota people every year, and they've got seven sacred ceremonies there. One of them being a uh, a, a ceremony called the remaking of relatives ceremony. So if someone uh, went sideways on the uh, uh, on the uh, tribal protocol, uh, they would have a circle, and uh, they would talk to this person, see what this person might uh, need to help them in their life. Not so much as a heavy-duty punishment or anything like that, but help them look inside themselves, see where they are, and see what they have to do to change, to learn from this, to help others. Uh, not to do this thing that got them there. So uh, one of the, uh, the short form of restorative justice would be a big fire being built, the person uh, being wrapped up in a blanket, and then passed back and forth through that fire for a while. So and then when the person came out, uh, okay, how do you feel about things now? And then they would discuss their feelings and what has come to them uh, through that process. I don't think we need to be doing that, but uh, that's one of the things that happened. Now, uh, lots of times they would send people out for a year out into the wilderness uh, if they had done something that warranted uh, you know, that much of a thing happening. And uh, so every year they would have the remaking of relative ceremony where the ones they sent out to look within, you know, it was a long, year-long vision quest uh, of looking inside oneself, and they would be brought back in to a big ceremony of remaking relatives and back into the circle to see if uh, they had actually come to a place where they had benefited from that process. I can tell you of a situation out in... Um, uh, the, the Coast Salish uh, communities uh, off of Bella Bella, if you know where that is, uh, up 350 kilometers north of Vancouver, up in that area. And there was a fellow out there who had killed someone, and they got permission from the government somehow that they would do a sentencing circle themselves. They were allowed to do that. And the sentence for this fellow was to be put out on an island by himself, and there's bears out on those islands, I can tell you that, and other creatures that you might not like to be around too much. And uh, he was out there two years. And when he came back in, he was uh, uh, totally transformed, and he's become one of the greatest teachers in our native communities now to help people see that process fully and incorporate it before they have to do something like that themselves. So, uh, you know, a restorative justice has been around for a long, long time. David, I, I want to get to a place before we actually run out of time here where, uh, you know, I say, what makes restorative justice even necessary? Why do we find ourselves on this Mother Earth in the place that we're in, where there's so much hatred, there's so much hurt, you know, there's so there's uh, so much going on that's so far out of balance. We don't even have descriptions uh, for those dimensions. Okay? So something we've set aside very importantly that we need to incorporate, and we can even do it with the ones who. are coming into uh, these programs instituted by Restorative Justice now, that this has to do with rite of passage ceremonies. And I'd, I'd just like to explain a process that used to happen on Turtle Island. That's this uh, North American continent we live on. And that once upon a time, when a new soul would be coming in through that, uh, that hole, uh, that opening that's uh, over the, the South Pole, that spirit would be coming in. And already uh, the elders in the community 
would be making preparations for that soul to come in. And one of the preparations would be to prepare the woman who was going to carry that new life would be that there was an uncle assigned, maybe an aunt and an uncle assigned, whose job in life for those nine months of that child being in the womb would be that no one would ever be allowed to come around that woman carrying that new life uh, who had uh, anything out of order to say or do. And that uncle, that aunt would just tell them to leave, come back when you get it together, and, you know, we'll see how it is then. So as that soul is coming in and enters the womb, the teachings are already there for that child of trust, of innocence, of open-mindedness, of non-judgmentalism, of unconditional love. All that is already being instilled within that child in that nine-month period. But when that child does come out of the womb, then that, that child, and too, you know, what uh, we say is it will be the young ones who will lead us from the long winter time into the new springtime. And we talk about that ceremony of birth being the most sacred ceremony that we have here on this earth. And we're not, we're not doing that anymore. We're not taking care of these children like that anymore and preparing them that way anymore. It's no wonder, you know, that we've got all these people in, in prison and we've got people even having, you know, being able to go through a restorative justice program. So, uh, so what would happen after that child comes out of the womb is that that child would be guided to be like the turtle. The turtle energy is a, uh, an energy of the south there in that opening where we enter the sacred hoop. And so the mother, the aunts and the uncles, all the ones in the nation would focus on helping that child look at things up close. Not get in a hurry. Look at everything, just like that turtle does, you know, going slowly and looking at things and never being, never being in a hurry at all. So, you know, we've set that kind of thing aside. If we were still doing that, the young people would already be capable of moving around that sacred hoop to the west. And then by the time they're 15, 16, they would be standing in the west that looks within place, the place of the Thunderbird where we get to look at all of our fears and disconnections. And that uh, being, that young person, would be there in the, in the West, fully capable, armed with all this information already about life and how to look at themselves and how to treat others. It would already be incorporated. And then... Uh, when that person is through doing what they're doing in the West, they would be in humility. One of the things we do today we got to take a look at, we're running around everywhere with our kids saying, oh, I'm so proud of you or what you're doing. We've got to be more humble. We've got to be more humble. Pride is one of the seven deadly sins, and we've forgotten about that. We have to teach our kids to be humble because they're in the West, there's a little small opening on that sacred hoop that goes on around to the north, uh, which uh, is the home of humility. Now, if, uh, if that hitchhiker called self-pride is riding the back of that child, they're never, if they think they're in charge and, you know, they're doing everything, then they're never going to be able to get through that small opening that that uh, continues around uh, to the north, to the place of the elders, to the place of cleansing, the place of purification, covered in that, that, that beautiful whiteness, and they'll never be able to get around that way. But uh, once, once you do that, and sometimes somebody can slip through there. You know, we've got uh, people in Germany, they say a schlingel, you know, a trickster, and who can get through that place. But something's getting ready to happen to that one. As we go around to the north, and then 
after we develop the uh, the humility, then it's just a simple movement from there to the east, uh, where we have all the tools at our disposal, and we're standing on the mountaintop. And, and that one who thinks he's tricked us is standing there too. Well, what happens now is you're standing on the mountain in the east, and you're looking down at the valley uh, from uh, whence you came. And we see very clearly that what that statement means. We must be as little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. See? So, so you, you go on back out through that hole uh, in the sky in the south. You go up to the Milky Way. And you travel, your spirit travels along the Milky Way. And when you get to toward the end of the Milky Way, there's an old grandmother sitting there in a rocking chair. And so she's watching all these ones come, and she's letting these ones go and sending them on to the next place. Then all of a sudden, the one, that, the trickster who thinks he's gotten away with something, the old grandmother kicks him off the Milky Way, he comes down and has to do the whole trip all over again. So the, all I'm saying is, yeah, mm. I'm, I, think I, I did that a few times before I got to where I am now. Mm. So, so anyway. Uh, well, Sequoia, I, I just um, would like to say that we do have some members of the council that would like to to uh, join the conversation if this is a good moment sure. to open it yes. up. It, it is. To welcome. You know how I am. Once I get on a roll, it could be another mm. week before I <laughs> stop. So, I just yeah, like please. to, to uh, welcome you, Kathleen. You're live. Are you there, Kathleen? Kathleen. Okay, I'll come back to her later. We also have a web question that I think might be a good place to explore here, and it comes from Heather and Mary. Thank you, Heather and Mary, for submitting your web question. And it concerns the tar sands mining and Keystone mm -hmm. XL pipeline. And also, um, if you, Sequoia, might speak a bit to the Idle No More movement. Um, they specifically ask here, um, <clears throat> What do you see from addressing and seeking an end to the tar sands mining and Keystone pipeline and other life-killing energy generation and consumption practices that are also unifying First Peoples and more recent peoples on Turtle Island towards the sustenance of natural law and life on Earth? Mm. That's quite a question, but there's been yeah, so much conversation um, on on many of these councils, um, especially recently surrounding Idle No More and the Keystone XL and Tar Sands. So thank you for sharing your wisdom, if you might. Well, this is a good place to look at this thing that we call judgment. See, and most of the activists and most of the people who don't want to see the Tar Sands there, and, you know, I don't even own a car. And I don't own a computer. And God gave me these uh, big feet I have so I can walk everywhere I need to go. You know, but also I'm caught up in flying around here and there and those kinds of things. But if, first of all, if we're going to help the tar sands uh, uh, in, a, in a way that, you know, will help all of us, First of all, we have to go into that without judgment. We have to go into that without anger. Uh, every, everything out there in this life is a mirror for each one of us. So when you look at the tar sands and you see what's going on there, what, what's really happening on this earth, nothing's what it looks like here on this earth. What's uh, really... Look, uh, happening is that we have an opportunity uh, to look within ourselves. Uh, that uh, that tar sand situation is putting out a big energy field toward us, and so if we can look into that energy field, and then from there look into our own hearts, and 
that place needs some help. And the only way we can help is if our minds are still and quiet and non-judgmental. That's when we have a powerful mind and things can change. Lots of time I've worked you know, with lots of activists along the way and many activists are angry about things. If you're angry about things, you're never going to get things changed because what this is really all about is your relationship with spirit and that you have to come forward into that situation uh, and be an example of, uh, of what it looks like to uh, be someone who can bring about change uh, in an invisible way. It's not going to happen through being angry. It's not going to be happening by trying to make things change. It's going to happen by you using that example of the, of the tar sands to, as a mirror to look within yourself. And when you look within yourself, you can see two things usually. If the person is screaming and yelling at you, you, the thing to do about that is not to scream and yell back. The thing to do is look within your own mind, and two things could be there. You can see your mind's totally discombobulated, or you can see uh, that your mind is like that quiet, still uh, mountain lake, the water in that mountain lake. And then spirit comes through and can help us do something about that. Spirit guides everything we do here on this earth. And when we get excited about things sometimes, uh, we forget about that. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, nothing ever worked in my life until I gave up all these ideas about changing things. And, and I, I came to a place of acceptance that whatever came my way is exactly what I needed to help me look within myself and be an example of that to others, to be an example of peace. So, when, when you say um, this concept of washte lo, um, is, that, okay. is that what washte lo is? Could you share a bit about that? Okay. Now, when I was, uh, you know, in the residential school as a little boy and getting beat up there, uh, I uh, thought, that, you know, these people can't be, there can't be a God uh, with this kind of stuff going on. And uh, so when I got with the Lakota people and they invited me to Sundance, which I've done many years with them, uh, a word was made available to me, and that word helped change my life. That word was washte lo, and that translates into it's all good. Because it's not what it looks like. There's a law of impermanence out there. And that law says everything's always changing. Nothing stays the same. We can influence change more easily by practicing the washte low. It's all good. And it's there to help us come to a place that we're not going to be in a place of power in our life unless we've turned ourselves completely over to spirit. And that we're not and we've let go of being guided by the intellect in these processes. They, all this stuff is there to help us look at ourselves. It, you know, it might be kind of hard to uh, you know, get yourself connected with that, but it is exactly that way. Mm. Mm. I'd yeah. like to take a moment, Sequoia uh, and Joyce, to um, thank Charles for his web question, I think it ties in really beautifully to the, the essence of your work, Sequoia, with youth, um, especially at the central focus um, of your service in the world. He, he, does, um, he mentions that he does recovery work at the local jail, and he feels that the youth of today carry a lot of baggage from their own um, and collective world wounds. He also feels that these same youths are seeking something more on the inside and um, he goes on to say what are some things that we can do to hold these young people's interest in evolving our planet once they leave the prison system it seems as though there is a lot of return visits um, also known as recidivism and um, he just he wonders how we might uh, help help our youth to 
have a bridge of sorts and, and what that might take? Well, first of all, we've got to be an example of uh, what we're doing with them ourselves. We have to be an example of uh, peace. We have to be an example of love, uh, an example of forgiveness under the most arduous circumstances. And to we have to, you know, if any of this is going to work at all and, you know, restorative justice could disappear if we would get back to the beginning again and go through that process I explained, you know, about honoring the young people. I want to tell you about that a place in Colombia. I go to a mountain in Colombia called the Heart of the World. And uh, uh, when a soul is coming in, a, a new soul is coming in, and they'll be aware if that soul is going to be one of the the teachers of the people uh, that they call Amamos there. Now, when that one comes in and comes forth from the womb of the woman, then that child is taken into a cave. And for 24 hours a day, for, let's get this now, nine years, the elders are coming before that, uh, that youth and sharing everything about existence and everything about how to live in harmony with everything from every grain of sand to the grandest mountain. It's all done in that way. Now, I'm not suggesting that you know, we go out and do it in that way, but that's one of the things that's happening on this earth right now, and I've been privy to that being around that situation. But what we have to do is to have some kind of a rite of passage ceremony and still, once again, where we're honoring those young people at all. They feel discarded. They don't want to have be around adults in their life because they see most of the adults in their life as someone you know who's not really tuned in to exactly what's going on, these uh, young people these days they're you know they're very intelligent, very intuitive, and so if you know I I work uh, also in Canada I, I work with the uh, Youth Defender Center there in Spy Hill doing the same thing as what's his name just asked uh, anyway. The, uh, the gentleman that asked the question. Um, yes, what was his name? Yes, his name is Charles. Yeah, Charles, okay, Charles. You know, you, you have to do everything you can in your life, and it'd be good for you to do a rite of passage ceremony if you haven't done one. And every man on this planet, you know, would help us change our way of looking at things by going out and sitting on the land and looking within yourself for... You know, you might be looking for simpler answers, but uh, this is one that's going to be most effective and one that always worked every time until we stopped doing it. Now, we just have to be with, with those young ones and, and be like them. When I'm in the prison with them in, in the Youth Offender Center, we all sit on the floor in a circle, and I don't sit in a chair up above them. And, you know, I'm never, and I make it very clear that I'm not higher than them at all. You know, there's this thing, this word, I'd like to say something about this word that we call cheat. See, we never had a word in any language and still know it translates into cheat. A person who's in a position of being a facilitator of situations, uh, he's referred to this way as a good and honorable person. And if you're a good and honorable person, these young people are going to pick up on that right away and they're going to pay attention to you. They're going to start watching what you do and they're going to become more like you because you're sharing that information that works. They've been, they're in prison because they've been around all kinds of situations with adults that don't work. Well, everything works eventually in the, in the whole scheme of things. But you know, being with these young people in that loving, giving state 
and never turning away from them, answering every question they have. If they need help in any way, it's our responsibility to help those young ones. Sequoia, do you think on that note that in our culture many of the um, the older two-leggeds, so to speak, the, the adults in our communities are, are um, feeling a pressure of, of, of sorts to get by or to um, perhaps to make ends meet, that um, there's this enormous amount of pressure in this cultural paradigm of ours that perhaps is an element that, uh, or maybe an excuse perhaps, that takes us away from really being present, not only for our youth, but ourselves and our own lives. What are your thoughts on that? And then I'd like to go, we'd, we have a few more people that would like to chime in here. Well, uh, you know, I mean, sure. Uh, uh, they're not getting, they're just not getting the guidance that's necessary for them to do what they do. And also, we got to remember that word along the way, wash, stay low, it's all good. Because when they're having a hard time, those young people, you know, that's reflecting back to us adults that we've definitely got to get something done here. And uh, so, uh, I've just come, I've, I've come to this place here. <laughs> Where uh, most uh, difficult to explain, you just have to be with the situation when you're with young people or anybody, and go with what you're given, mm. and go with what you're given, and be authentic about what you're doing in every situation. Mm. Well, I know. Um we have some, some other folks that would like to chime in in the conversation. Thank you so much tonight for being with us, Sequoia. Um, Jan, welcome. You're live. Jan, welcome. You're live. Jan? Okay. I, I don't think that, um, that her mic is coming through or perhaps that question uh, passed by. But um, I'd just like to, to wrap up tonight with, um, with the element of uh, the great thanks, great peace, great love, mm -hmm. meditation. And, and that's one of the things that you've shared with me in the time that, that, that I've known you that has influenced me on a daily basis. And one mm -hmm. of the things that I've really enjoyed about this series is um, towards the end of our time together, sharing something that we can can bring into our lives in, in a, a tangible way. Would you share mm -hmm. about, with uh, us about that? Yeah, sure. And, you know, we're talking about uh, working with these young people, and I've been in uh, communities all over uh, the Americas, uh, down in the, in the United States, uh, in Canada, and uh, uh, one community, and I just won't even mention the name of it right now, uh, that I was called into because 82 young people had signed a suicide pact. You know, these were uh, young Native people. And I got called there into that community, and, and I was, you know, just sideways myself when you go into something like that, you know, we don't know what to do. We human beings don't know what to do about something like that. And so the way I dealt with that, I just put my hand up in the air and looked at the grandmothers and grandfathers and says, okay, you guys got me into this. Now do something because I don't know what to do. And so I was in that community for six months. And it's just a matter of what we were talking about, about the one young person earlier, totally giving you totally to uh, that situation. And it got cleared up. It got cleared up. Now, a little further down the line, I was in another uh, suicide situation on the uh, West Coast. And 
when I'm called into those situations, at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'm up fully dressed. I've already uh, uh, done all of the stretching exercises I'm going to do, and I'm into the prayers, and I have the pipe sitting there in front of me. And uh, this one particular time, as I'm doing this, all of a sudden, a, a, a large circle appeared in front of me. And the circle had an equilateral triangle in it. And at the top of the circle, it said, Yamogoa, great thanks. At the bottom left leg of the circle, it said, Skonagoa, great peace. At the bottom right hand of the leg of the circle, it said, Gonarunkwa Goa, that love that enfolds itself around everything in creation. And so uh, I jumped up looking for a pencil or a pen, because I usually don't carry those kind of things around, that I remember finding something, and I drew this circle, and I drew the triangle, and this, this feminine voice. I have a feminine voice talking to me a lot. It happened to me uh, when I drowned back when I was a young boy. It happened to me uh, when I was skipping class in high school because I just didn't, feel compelled to, to be in the class. It happened to me several times in Vietnam, and it still happens to me, thank goodness. So uh, this feminine voice was there. And uh, so what I was just given, as it was explained to me, was the path of peace. And I, I, I saw very quickly that the path of peace was very simple very simple to understand, very simple to say, but also at the same time the most difficult path for us human beings to walk on this Mother Earth. Because for the most part, you know, we want to be in charge of things. And we can't be. We can't be in charge of things. We have to turn ourselves fully over to that spirit uh, before we can be fully capable of helping anyone. Otherwise, if we're just in the intellect and that that left brain, we're just kidding ourselves. So here I was in, in this place. And at the same time, uh, that woman gave me uh, 16 shape-shifting positions, which I still do every day, still practice those every day. And so great thanks at the top of the circle. If you're thankful, that means you're in gratitude. It also... Uh, it also means that you're in a forgiving state, and it also means that you're in a state of acceptance. Now, when you're, when you're in that thankful state, the forgiving state, and the state of acceptance, then you'll find yourself at that bottom left leg, standing there fully in the place of peace, fully. And it's then and only then as you look across the circle to that other bottom leg, that place of the great love that fills everything, it's then and only then will you come to an awareness of what love really is. Love, love uh, is not you know, what we've been taught, this, this soft puppy thing. It can be that too. It can also be that thing that throws us down on the floor and stomps on us and kicks us into the cosmic washing machine. It can be all of those things. And all of these things, even though, you know, that sounds uh, pretty stringent and rugged, uh, we're going to get exactly what we need to bring us into that place of change. And we're all going to end up in this place of peace. The world was made for peace. Peace is all there is. I was taken into another place at one time. I've been everywhere, as I said, in the Pleiades. And they told me they had brought me there to show me uh, what peace looked like. They said, this planet at one time was embroiled in war, just like you are right now. And that it was through war. I went to war to learn about peace. It's through these wars that we learn to be peaceful. And you know, we get in a hurry. We've got to hurry up and get this done. Hey, we live in eternity. We live in infinity. Take your time. You know, if you don't get it done in this body, you've been in many bodies before, and you're going to be in many bodies again. And we're going to get this done. That's what they tell me. 
also had the eternal seed of peace placed into my heart by the people on that mountain down in Colombia. And they said I would have everything made available to me, every resource I needed to uh, work on this thing called peace, to share peace with all of their relatives everywhere. And it has been exactly like that. It's been easy for me. Easy. Life was not easy for me for 99.9% .9 of my life. But all of those things I did that were not easy all had something to do with coming to that place of peace. All of these things that we judge, all these things that we don't like, all of those things will eventually be the very things that will take us to the heart of peace, the heart of peace resides in the mm. middle of the human beings. Mm. Well, it's it's just been quite the hour um, and a quick one <laughs> with you, Sequoia, and I just want to thank you so much for your time tonight with us. Um, and I would like to welcome everyone again to go to the Do Peace website, which is D-O-P-E-A-C-E.us. This archive from tonight's council and all of our councils is accessible by mousing over the Restorative Justice tab. You'll find a drop-down menu there, and you can freely ac access all of our archives also like to cordially invite you to join us next week as we host Jesse Lava of Beyond Bars and the following week, Officer Greg Ruprecht from the Longmont, Colorado Police Department. So on behalf of the Peace Alliance, Joyce Anastasia and myself, Sequoia, thank you so much for being with us tonight and may you all go in peace. Yeah. Good night, everyone. And thank you, Sequoia. Thank you, Molly, and next time I'd like to be able to listen to all those other voices and uh, learn something from them. So thank you. Oh, oh thank you.